Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal, professional journeys, their experiences, reflections, their ideas that never quite get represented in this way in standard academic conferences or publications. Today's episode is part of a special series focused on the proposed diagnosis of terminal anorexia nervosa. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University, and I am really delighted to be joined today by Rachel Rattany, who is a graduate student at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She also has a um, master's degree in bioethics from Columbia University, and Rachel has her own lived experience of an eating disorder. All of these pieces, her lived experience and her formal studies have informed the ideas that she's going to share with us today about the proposed diagnosis of terminal anorexia nervosa. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Rachel, I think we should start uh, with a little bit about your own story as it relates to the conversation today. Let's let's begin there. Sure. So I kind of grew up dieting. Um, I don't really remember a time when I wasn't trying to manipulate my food in some way. My first diet was at five, but you know, it was more like an intention to diet than actually changing my eating because it was the nineties. And I thought, you know, like I would be fat free, but didn't really know what that meant. Mm -hmm. Um, but like controlling my appetite has been like a lifelong project. That said, I didn't really develop an eating disorder in any like clinical sense until um, I was older. I was about 21 and in college. And um, I'm 32 now. So early on, uh, the diagnosis was bulimia. And I tried a bunch of different treatment, day treatment, meal support groups, partial hospitalization, residential, um, outpatient, and eventually the diagnosis changed to anorexia, but um, it, it really felt like the same disorder the whole time. And um, I was feeling really discouraged in typical, you know, standard eating disorder treatment. So I eventually sought out a harm reduction approach and did that for many years. And ultimately in 2021 or 2022, I was in a clinical trial at Johns Hopkins that really changed things for me. But, you know, now my life is is very different, but I still like hold on to a lot of the harm reduction uh, principles that I had picked up earlier. Can you share with us what does harm reduction mean? How is that different from what we think of as the standard treatment interventions for eating disorders? Sure. So... In my experience, standard treatment um, was very behavioral and really focused on changing eating patterns and behaviors around food and, you know, eventually changing weight. With harm reduction, um, we kind of took changing my eating behaviors and changing my body off the table. So really just focused on like me feeling better and having a better quality of life um, because I was really quite miserable at the time. And relationships were falling apart, you know, friendships. I couldn't really work 
it like took all of my energy to go to a few classes and um we we just really focused on those other areas mhm so as uh, as a clinician treatment interventions are, are are typically designed right to help somebody who presents with a certain clinical presentation to recover from those clinical symptoms that make up this disorder and the idea is that as the individual recovers from those core symptoms other aspects of their lives will also move with them and be part of the recovery process as you say with harm reduction you take the symptom recovery or symptom cure off the table and say okay let's focus on these other issues and let's reduce the harm of these behaviors to the other parts of your life that matter and mm-hmm. as a clinician um it it seems like a stark contrast when we say it in practice it's probably in many cases more of a blend in the course of recovery than actually being black and white but 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 what you're describing is when you when you move to a true harm reduction position there's a relief that comes from not having to work so hard on resolving some eating disorder symptom right how do i know as a clinician if i'm doing the right thing for you at that point what do you, what would you say how did you know that was the right thing for you at that time and what would you say to a clinician um around figuring out you know when is that the right sort of decision point yeah um it's a tough question so i you know it was in some version of like a standard type of treatment um for about 2 years and i had felt pretty early on that it maybe wasn't the kind of treatment that i wanted you know things in particular like keeping a food log made me feel even more obsessed and um you know counting calories wasn't an issue for me until i had to literally write down everything i was eating mm-hmm. um and then that took a while to resolve and you know going over a plan each week of like let's try to cut down the binging and purging or let's try to like eat x y and z in this time frame um it made it feel kind of like a class that i was failing mm-hmm. and appointments started to feel really demoralizing so that's really how i knew it wasn't that kind of approach just wasn't going to help me at least not at that point mm-hmm. and i don't necessarily regret that time because i think it's possible that you know everyone might even need behavioral treatment for an eating disorder at some point and it certainly gave me some of the tools i needed later on but at the time i was just like feeling worse and worse so mm-hmm. i knew i needed to do something different yeah so I think it's really important what you say that you need different things at different points in time trusting yourself communicating that to your clinician your therapist is so essential and um being prepared to continue to should be a thoughtful observer of what's working and what's not and what's helping you move forward and what's not as we think about 
your own experience and your willing your willingness your determination to pursue different treatments there were times where you say you felt really demoralized felt um like you didn't know you know we were ever going to get through this mm-hmm. so as we move towards this discussion uh and the proposed diagnosis of terminal anorexia nervosa as someone who's lived with an eating disorder that can be so difficult uh, and where the light at the end of, end of the tunnel can be very dim, when you first learned ara- about this proposed diagnosis, what was your reaction? My first reaction was, um, I believe that paper came out in 2022. And in 2022, I was already like in a better place. And I was really glad that it hadn't come out a year earlier because um, it felt like something I would have applied to myself. After you have been through like a couple different kinds of treatment, it is not hard as someone with an eating disorder to get a clinician to tell you that they don't know how to help you anymore. Um, And that like they no longer have hope for your recovery. You know, people said that to me and I was never at like imminent risk of death from malnutrition or something, um, you know, people would say to me, like, you're going to die a lot earlier than you should, maybe not tomorrow, but you know, you really need to make these changes. So that's something that, um, really like struck me with the diagnosis is that, um, you know, at the time, like I had times when I felt really hopeless and I felt like a burden, you know, on like a drain of financial resources, a drain of medical resources, and even, you know, it's hard on my family and on the clinicians who really did try to help me. You know, I felt bad that I wasn't improving. So something like this would have felt like a relief. And um, I don't worry that, you know, I would have been like, oh, I'm terminal. I'm going to enter hospice. I don't think any physician would have gotten on board with that. But it just would have made the hopelessness even worse. You talk about hopelessness, and I think hope is such an important part of this story. And I have a dear friend who says, you know, lose hope, game over. And I think that's true in so many aspects of our lives. And in clinical care and in recovery from various health conditions, whether it's anorexia nervosa or another eating disorder or cancer or anything else, having a the capacity to hope is really critical. What gave you hope in the course of your recovery? And, and, and how does this diagnosis of terminal anorexia nervosa put at risk the capacity to hope? So I didn't really have hope. Um, when I entered the clinical trial that I did, um, I was quite certain it wasn't going to work. Um, It just seemed really different than anything I had done. And it seemed interesting to me and it didn't involve any, it didn't involve any meal plan or like food in really any way. Um, So it was something I was willing to try. And my perspective eventually just shifted. Um, You know, the psychiatrist that I worked with there um, 
was really adamant that, you know, she told me in a, in a slightly, you know, nicer words, like <laughs> you're overreacting, like you're not going to, you know, you can recover. It's going to be fine. Um, you have everything you need to recover. And, um, you know, I'm fully hopeful and I picture your life in five years and it's so different. And that wasn't something I could do. That's a really important reminder, Rachel, of uh, how much therapists can be, how important therapists can be in terms of carrying hope for people at times when when it just seems so dark. Right. And, and it was very powerful because I really respected her. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, here is this, I valued her opinion. Mm-hmm. And the same was true of the person who told me that he was hopeless. Mm-hmm. So it, it, you know, those words really, really matter. So is it the case that with the proposed diagnosis of terminal anorexia nervosa, part of why it's so troubling for people is that at some level it is conveying we have lost all hope? Yeah, a- absolutely. It it conveys that we have, that's exactly what it conveys um, and, you know, the, um, diagnosis itself is meant to apply to a very, very small fraction of people with, um, severe anorexia nervosa, but I think that many more people will apply it to themselves. And even just the idea that there is a hopeless case of this kind of eating disorder that, you know, maybe I'm headed there. Or like, yeah, why put all the inevitable? That's something that bothers me. I also think that, you know, all eating disorders can cause, um, you know, physical harm and death and all of them do. So it it feels like, I mean, I don't really like slippery slope arguments, but I, I just, I don't think anorexia is that different. You know, all eating disorders cause suffering and harm. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't really know why it needs to be singled out. Mm-hmm. So tell me more. When the uh, proposed diagnosis came out, you actually wrote about it and have thought through a number of different specific concerns. You've raised that right out of the gate, the issue of, conveying that there's no hope is a big problem. Mm-hmm. What are the other aspects of this diagnosis that concern you? You know, I want to be clear that I do not question the way any of the patients in that paper were treated um, or the decisions that they made. Um, but I, I don't like the implication that a terminal diagnosis is necessary to receive palliative care. I think that, you know, palliative care is often conflated with hospice palliative care can be added at any point um, and is about easing suffering can be in conjunction with curative treatment or not. Um, and, you know, palliative care physicians are quite adamant about that. They, they don't, you know, they always wish they were involved earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and- so let's just clarify that for the larger conversation because this is a, you're absolutely right. This is a big issue in healthcare generally, that palliative care gets conflated with end of life 
care. And mm-hmm. again, palliative care is about easing the suffering at any point uh, in the course of a health condition, right? So you could receive palliative care uh, for a chronic condition because it's about reducing the negative implications and enhancing quality of life, similar principles to this, the model of harm reduction, Mm -hmm. which can happen at any point. That's really different from somebody is within a certain number of months of passing and they have a terminal health condition and they could still be getting palliative care, but that's end of life care. That's, that's very specific, right? Yeah. And and I do see palliative care on a kind of um, spectrum, you know, with harm reduction. Um, and the authors of this paper, um, you know, I think it was in one of the follow-ups, they were talking about how this, these criteria were necessary for palliative care physicians to know how to handle um, people with severe eating disorders. And I just, I, I don't, I don't, by that argument, I, I think that um, I imagine there are palliative care physicians who are very wary of working with people with severe eating disorders because it does seem different than what they're usually doing. But I imagine that that is more a function of eating disorders being viewed as kind of niche within the medical field than it is a function of there not being a terminal diagnosis. So that's one thing. Another, you know, something that I appreciated that the authors pointed out was that, um, you know, part of their aim was to consider what patients actually wanted and, you know, what their goals of care were and respecting that their goals might be different than the clinicians who are working with them. And I think those are really important points, but I don't think that someone with an eating disorder should have to get to the point where the clinicians treating them are debating whether or not they are terminal to have those conversations and to take their goals seriously. So elaborate on that. What, what are you, when should, I'm saying it a little bit rhetorically, but it seems so obvious, right? That when you say that to me, of course, the patient's the individual's treatment goals or treatment aspirations or recovery goals should be part of the story from the beginning. But because we're having this conversation, it means they're not always. So tell me, tell me more about your experience of that and what you're, um, what you're leaning into here. I think that a lot of um, standard eating disorder treatment doesn't allow for much patient autonomy Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, like the more structured programs like day treatment and residential, et cetera, there's this kind of idea in, um, eating disorder treatment that malnutrition, however, that looks for someone must be reversed before any meaningful psychological change can occur. Mm-hmm. And I actually believe that. I, you know, to an extent, I, I do think that malnutrition affects people's brains. And, you know, I have felt that my 
my ability to focus and my thoughts are very different um, now than they were a few years ago. That said, it's hard to overstate how devastating that is to hear when you aren't sure that you will ever fully recover Mm -hmm. Um, because it makes it seem like there isn't really another option. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the first um, specialists I worked with told me pretty early on, she gave me a number and, you know, she's like, if you get below this, I can't work with you anymore. And that's, it's it's hard to hear. And, you know, I understand to an extent, maybe that's not the kind of work that she wanted to do clinically and that's okay, but it would be nice (laughs) if um, clinicians would kind of like work with us to figure out what's important um, to each of us. Like even today, I um, have had the same thing for breakfast for like the last two years. And like, who cares? You know, like that's not the ideal scenario, but like I can go away for a weekend and have something, you know, different, like for a day, maybe two. And maybe I'd like to have some more flexibility, but right now it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's small things like that. Yeah. I, I've often thought as a, a clinician uh, and working with lots of individuals who've had uh, various eating disorders, including anorexia nervosa, that there are times where we run the risk as clinicians of setting up this virtuous ideal for our patients with anorexia nervosa that is a reaction to how off track they seem to be. and um, But we're setting up this ideal that actually nobody achieves, right? Like, uh, you know, like eating three meals a day and this and this and this and this and this, that taken at face value, it's another, it's a mirror image of the extreme behavior. And maybe we need to really think about that more uh, in a more constructive way. Uh, yeah. Who cares if you eat the same breakfast every day, if that's working? Yeah. For you? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, you know, that's something that I felt too in the like higher levels of treatment was the very specific, like not only do you need to eat this, you need to eat it in this amount of time and in this way. And if you do this, I'm going to call it out. And you know, it's going to be triggering to the people around you. And that experience in day treatment of meals being so tense, you know, it really like instilled this fear in me that to this day, I cannot eat a meal with someone else without worrying that like I am inflicting myself upon them. Mm-hmm. And that really didn't help with like all of the shame that I was feeling. So there's a lot of work to do around the ways in which we set treatment goals and the ways in which we engage. Clearly, the behavioral strategies are set up to help interrupt patterns that have become automatic, patterns that are reinforcing the eating disorder. But hearing your description, you're 
there's a very high level of need for us to be thoughtful and more sophisticated around and nuanced around what the meanings are for people at different stages of treatment. And and so going back to this idea of terminal anorexia nervosa, you have identified the the risks associated with this diagnosis. Um, do you think that do we know enough or based on your own experience, based on the research you've done, is there such a thing? And are we able to define terminal anorexia nervosa? Are the criteria that they put forward specifically problematic or useful or partially correct, partially incorrect? What do you think specifically about the proposed criteria? You know, some people, unfortunately, will, um, you know, maybe not recover from their eating disorders. Um, but I don't think that we can say with any certainty, like who's terminal and who isn't. And I think the criteria put forth are, are not very challenging to, to meet. Um, I've met a lot of people with eating disorders that have not thought they would ever recover and like I said, I was certain um, I was just wrong. So, you know, I, I, I guess I wonder with the potential to cause so much harm, what is the benefit of this diagnosis? Um, you know, if people with eating disorders had an easier time accessing care and accessing, you know, palliative care was not so difficult for the patients described in this case series, this diagnosis wouldn't have been necessary. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way to get to that without it. So from your perspective, you think that we don't know who is who actually is going to die from this disorder because you know people who met the criteria put forward for terminal anorexia who are alive and thriving today. So mm-hmm. clearly they, they didn't have a terminal case. Um, and if the intent is that this diagnosis would increase a certain kind of access to care, if that's the idea, you're saying it's really not necessary. Is that right? Yes. And and I really, you know, value expertise. Um, And at the same time, I don't think that medical fields outside of psychiatry need to be afraid of eating disorders. Um, You know, it's, it's really sad that people have a hard time accessing palliative care when they need it or want it. Um, It shouldn't be withheld just because um, an illness is viewed as mental or psychiatric rather than, I don't know, physiological in some other way. Yeah. So as you review the conversation, the discourse that now is occurring around this topic, what should we be talking about when we're talking about somebody who has who maybe meets the criteria that that the authors put forward as terminal 
um, maybe it's not terminal. Maybe it's somebody who's had a the the group that's most impacted by anorexia nervosa. That group, what should we be talking about? And what are the issues that you think should be the priority for us in terms of clinical care for individuals that that would technically meet that diagnosis, but actually wind up many of them not being quote unquote terminal? I think like access to care is incredibly important and um, access to different kinds of care. Um, And I can really only speak about what's been helpful to me, but things that I have seen, like even um, in the interview last week with Rosiel, which is intimidating to follow, they spoke about being in the hospital at one point and kind of kept separate from the other patients with eating disorders. And in like a less blatant example, we are kind of taught in treatment that we might trigger each other. And there are certain things that we can't say. Um, And, you know, behaviors that we're not allowed to talk about in a group explicitly. And um, something that was really powerful for me was um, when I was in residential treatment, actually, we had the option of going to AA meetings in the evening and there wasn't much to do. So um, (laughs) so I went and seeing people just talk very openly about some of the things they were most ashamed about and some of like the worst days in their lives was really powerful. Mm -hmm. And I kind of felt like, oh, you know, these are my people, mm-hmm. even though alcohol isn't, wasn't really the thing for me. Mm-hmm. And I think like in so many other mental illnesses, community is really important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even in like schizophrenia, there are, um, you know, groups for people who experience psychosis and can talk about things in a really open and connecting way. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, connections I've made with people in treatment have, have been really helpful. And I wish that there was a space for that kind of connection, you know, not having to fear that you're going to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. I think that would be powerful. Uh huh. That's very interesting. And thinking about models like the twelve-step program of AA, what are the principles there that might be valuable to consider around uh, treatment programs for eating disorders and the the uh, approach and the power of community? Right. Obviously, like an abstinence model isn't going to work for eating right. disorders, but right. That said, you know, there are things to learn from other other fields and other areas of mental health. Anything else that you um, want to share about this proposed diagnosis and maybe where the field, from your perspective, how could we, how can we grow as a field? What are the questions we need to be asking to 
address this proposed diagnosis more competently? I think that we need to ask what the diagnosis is trying to achieve and um, come up with some other ways to achieve that. Um, And I imagine that that will involve a really careful consideration of access to care Mm -hmm. and access to care of someone's choice. Uh Uh-huh. So as you talk about your own experience, Rachel, and as you know the moments in your life where you were really lacking hope, wondering Mm -hmm. uh, if you, you know, it was pretty dark, there were dark days where you've been told that there is no hope or you wondered yourself if there was any hope. You also experienced the incredible power of someone lending you hope and uh, helping you get through. So as I hear what you're saying, the and, and you speak about the 12-step programs and the meetings in the rooms and, and that experience of community and connection and lifting the shame and uh, being able to lend hope to one another in the course of community, in the course of recovery uh, through community. There, it sounds like that would be a piece of the work that we could do in the field of eating disorders. We could lean into that further and think about how to make that um, more uh, a more standard part of recovery for people. Your your comment is really interesting to me because the idea that we have to control what is being said and certain things are off the table, certain things are prohibited from conversation. In my experience from the clinical services side, it's always been around trying to set parameters that we think are going to help people in their recovery but it's interesting to hear your comments because there's a certain hubris about that and a certain opportunity is what you're saying, the opportunity to hear further from people who are in this on this journey, how to, how to define that space that you share for, for conversation. Right. Especially about... Um around binging and purging, I had so much shame. And when I got to treatment, I was like, I haven't had an honest conversation in months. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like I couldn't really have it there either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do understand, you know, not wanting to trigger someone or give someone an idea. I just think that Often by the time like we get to intensive treatment, we've kind of heard all of the things already and, you know, seen images, at least even online of people who are like, quote unquote, sicker than we are. And um, it can be so powerful to see someone improve in front of your eyes. Mm -hmm. That really instilled hope for change for me. Thank you, Rachel. You're thoughtfulness about your own journey and the 
understanding the intent, perhaps, of terminal anorexia nervosa, but the problems and limitations that it presents from your perspective is really valuable in adding to the discourse and and really helping to move the field forward so that we can collectively, hearing from people with lived experience from the beginning, shape interventions, treatments that really do improve quality of life. And for many will mean full recovery, but others will mean living with certain aspects of the eating disorder, but with a high quality of life. And um, really appreciate your thoughtfulness and adding to this conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks.